Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Today we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration, which we're lucky enough falls on a Sunday this year so that more people are here to celebrate with us. And unsurprisingly, the assigned reading for today is St. Matthew's account of the Transfiguration, which is found in some form in all of the Synoptic Gospels. The Transfiguration is one of the great 12 feasts of the Church. Like so many of the stories that we read in the Bible, we too often begin to take them for granted, and I think this is particularly true of a story like the Transfiguration. Sometimes I think of the Transfiguration as the greatest story that might never have been told. I mean, think about it. Jesus takes you and just a couple of the other, uh, just a couple of other people up to the top of a mountain where you have an incredible experience. You see J Jesus shine like the sun and his clothes become the brightest white you can imagine. You hear a voice from the cloud and you hear two people that are long dead talking to Jesus. Imagine what would happen if you came down from the mountain and started telling people about this. Perhaps they'd accuse you of being a wine-bibber like they did Jesus occasionally, or quite frankly, of using some substances quite a bit stronger. And in the version in St. Matthew today as well as St. Mark, Jesus charges Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Oh, really, Jesus? I was planning to tell my friends and family the minute I got down from the mountain so that they could lock me up in my padded cell. And Jesus, admittedly, we still don't know what you mean about risen from the dead. After all, Peter was telling you just a few days ago that there was no way that you should be killed by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be raised on the third day. What do you think? We're crazy? So even after the Lord is raised and the apostles have an even more seemingly ridiculous story to tell, of a man raised from the dead, why would they choose to add insult to injury by retelling such a wild story of this experience up on the mountain? Why is this story so important that every one of the Synoptic Gospel writers thought it was worthwhile to include it? If we think that the people at the time of Christ were somehow less incredulous than us, we would be sorely mistaken, so there must be more to this. Although the Gospels appear first in the sequence of the New Testament books, we should always remember that they were written after the majority of Paul's epistles. And we see from Paul's letters that there was a great deal of tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. There is little doubt that the Gospels were crafted in a way to partially respond to this tension while portraying the events of Jesus' life. It's extremely important that we never forget that the people around the time of Jesus had a very different sense of history than, they, than we do. Yes, they were concerned with facts, but they weren't afraid to move things around, reorder them, so that they could tell a story, an organized story, with a specific goal in mind. And if we somehow think this is inferior to our dry and empirical scholastic approach, I think we're yet, a, yet again falling into the trap of believing that just because we're later in history that we're somehow superior thinkers. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we also know that despite this claimed adherence that modern historians follow, there's plenty of bias in their uh, accounts as well as journalists, etc. We see it all the time. They tell the story they want us to hear. The gospel writers are no different. 
So it's good to not forget and recognize that the Gospels were told with a purpose. And we see that each of the Synoptic Gospels has its own flavor in telling the Transfiguration story that actually really aligns with the overall mission of that Gospel. For example, in the case of Mark, his Gospel was largely written for the Jerusalem church and Peter's followers. One of his goals was to call them away from the earthly Jerusalem and the earthly interpretation of the law toward a heavenly Jerusalem and a spiritual understanding of the law. Once Jerusalem no longer has its prominence, and we will not be worshiping on this hill or that hill, but rather we, both Jew and Gentile, will be worshiping in spirit and truth. Then Christ's coming in power will be fulfilled. It's easy to think that Christ's coming in power doesn't occur until he's raised from the dead or until his ascension. However, God doesn't really work that way. And in a sense, the transfiguration itself is a revealing of Jesus already coming with that power. In Mark, just before the telling of the transfiguration story, as in Matthew, the preceding story is one where Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. Let me refresh your memory. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I think Jesus is talking about the transfiguration right there. And there's an interesting note, a very interesting note in both Matthew and the Mark version, that the transfiguration takes place six days later. This is a really odd remark, particularly for Mark, who, as you probably know is very keen to say immediately this and immediately that. However, we know from what appears to be Peter yet again putting his foot in his mouth on the mountain saying that he's going to build tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, that the transfiguration is taking place at the time of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. That is a Jewish feast, a joyful fall harvest feast, that begins five days after the Day of Atonement. 
During the feast, meals are eaten in, and many sleep in the temporary shelters that are built just for the feast. Remembering both the agricultural connection of staying in the fields during the harvest and the wandering in the desert where the Israelites lived in temporary shelters for 40 years. If you pay attention, you will see these booths in sometime, sometime in late September or October outside of Jewish synagogues and homes. So it appears that the specific time frame noted connects the first episode when Peter was talking to Jesus to the Day of Atonement, which happens on the 10th day of the seventh month. And that would tie Christ's sacrifice on the cross discussed there to the Day of Atonement and to the important theme of humbling oneself or being destroyed amongst one's people, which is associated with this very passage that talks about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus. In the reckoning of days used at that time, right, six days later would be what we would say five days later. And that would mean that this is taking place at the beginning of the Feast of Booth on the 15th day of the seventh month, when the produce of the land has been gathered in. And that mirrors the fruit of the kingdom arriving with power after Christ's suffering that results in the atonement. This could also explain why the booths have yet to be built in the transfiguration account and Peter is offering to build them. No mention is made in Mark of what Moses and Elijah are doing, and not much in Matthew either. But if we look at Luke, it talks about the glory of Moses and Elijah, also with that of Jesus. And it says that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This, as in Mark, ties the transfiguration directly to the glory of Christ, revealed after his suffering and death. However, in Luke, the transfiguration, it says, takes place about eight days later, rather than six days. And this may function with respect to Luke's very mission in his gospel to represent the new law and the new scriptures as showing the glory of Christ as occurring on the eighth day, the first day of the new creation in Christ. In, in Luke, this mention of Exodus and the glory of Jesus also strongly ties the transfiguration account to the giving of the law on Sinai recorded in Exodus 24. And there are numerous allusions in Luke's version of the story, in addition to the word Exodus and glory, that tie it to that passage, and to that event and, and the transfiguration account. It would happen on a mountaintop, the encompassing cloud, the voice of the Lord calling out from the cloud, and furthermore, Jesus is delivering the new Christian revelation to Moses and Elijah, who had previously received the old revelation. Further emphasizing Luke's wish to instruct his readers in the new law, Luke uses the subsequent chapters after they come down from the mountain to extensively share some of Jesus' teaching that is unique to Luke's gospel. So all that's really nice. I hope it's interesting. But what does the transfiguration tell us about our walk with Jesus? Well, first, I think it tells us about the utter ineffability of God. It reminds us that we can do all the book learning about God that we want, as we were just doing a little bit of now, but we can only come to know God through experience. And to do that, we have to let go of our assumptions, just as Peter and the rest of the disciples had to let go of everything they thought they knew about God 
in order to really come to know Jesus and God better, lest they become a hindrance or even Satan himself to God's mission. Part of that experiential approach is embodied in an approach to theology that we've discussed many times before called apophatic theology. This apophatic thing is like, it's, it means negative. It's a negative approach. And when we say God is love, then we don't really mean that. Because God is so much more love than our word means. And so in that sense, God isn't love. But even that doesn't work, so he's also super not love, and so forth. He's something way bigger than we could even begin to imagine. This isn't intended to just be a mental exercise. We have to let go of what we believe and let God, through, his rela through our relationship with him, teach us, again, in a relational, not a rational way, what love actually is. He, he embodies it. We have to let God redefine love for us and stop trying to make God fit in our box of what we think love is. Second, even though God may be completely ineffable, he's right there. Even if God appears hidden to us, he's literally everywhere. In the fifth book of Clement of Alexandria's Stramata, he describes apophatic contemplations as a geometric analysis, where one begins to approach a certain understanding of God by gradually removing one dimension at a time, even eliminating the topos, the Greek word topos of the point, to reach an intelligible monad that will be stripped of everything that can be attributed to intelligible beings. This approach is reminiscent of another book I hope you've read at some point in your life, Flatland, a romance of many dimensions, a novella by Edwin Abbott Abbott, where the author takes the reader towards the otherworldly concept of the fourth dimension by starting from the perspective of the dwellers of a two-dimensional flatland who have never experienced a three-dimensional spaceland in which we exist. Apophatic theology urges us to go on this journey in the opposite direction, as Clement described, not just intellectually but actually, gradually reducing our dimensionality through genuine contemplation, purification, until we're a mere point, or less than a point. Some kind of union with the one, God, who isn't really even a one, but a zero. He's not created. He doesn't exist is the way we mean exist. He's simply our God, who art present everywhere and fillest all things. And yet through our blindness, much like the fourth dimension, he's nearly always invisible to us. And yet, on that mountain, Peter, James, and John saw, at some level, God. And so may we, like Peter, who finally, by letting go of everything he thought Jesus should be, became the rock upon which the church was built. Can we become a rock to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and everyone we meet? May we, like Paul, who had to be struck down and blinded to let go of everything he thought Jesus was, and become the apostle. Can we become the apostle to those around us by letting go of our assumptions about God? So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to let go of everything you think you know about God and instead pray. Pray quietly and listen. Stop trying to make God who you want him to be and start listening to God. Start looking for God who will be happy to show you who he really is. He's right there. And although we're not likely to be transfigured in the blink of an eye, may we start our journey towards the goal of our Christian life, 
to be more godlike, our theosis, by first letting go of our assumptions, just as the disciples had to do and did do. And therefore, I pray, may we not only get a glimpse into a sort of fourth dimension, not only be transfigured, but be truly transformed into our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant this, O Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.